the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Everything feels normal again, for we have both Hallmans with us, which I think the plural of that is the Hallsman. Hallsman, right? that's right? us. Like notaries public and passersby, the Hallsman. And Seth Liebson. Yeah, I don't know how to do that one. That's, that's a lot of slurring. Hugh Hallman, welcome back to town. Welcome back to the country. Lewis Hallman, always uh, delightful to have you with us. Lou Hallman, Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics. Insight Analytics LLC is, uh, .com is the website. Hugh Hallman, of course, is the former mayor of Tempe. Is this a family reunion? Have you two not seen we each other? We have not seen yeah, one another. No, this is a, we chatted on the phone a little bit about the show and chaos and other things, but... No, you haven't seen each other. We have not seen See, one this another. This is a family show. We're it reuniting is. families yeah. two I, at a time. I also spoke with him when I was in Kazakhstan. So. Very nice, but you haven't seen him, and uh, you haven't seen me. It's good to have you back. Hugh Hallman, of course, being the former mayor of Tempe, prominent attorney in town, educator, and so many other things. Political has-been. Uh, yeah. You keep yeah. saying that, and it's really one of the few things we disagree about, as does my, like But I have my party. audience on my side. <laughs> yes. I have the audience on my side. Okay, political never was. Is that better? No, you, are, you, you, you're, you're somebody. You're no, somebody. no, no. Pol- political has been. He does linger like a bad fart. <laughs> All right. Oh, wow. oh, my gosh. You can't leave the country again. <laughs> oh, my dear. All right. Um, okay, I now I, I'm down to two sons in my will. Yeah, there, that's right. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I want to catch up on all of it. I don't know the best way to start. We had a caller who wanted to talk about vaccines. I was just doing a riff on Fauci. Lewis, you came in saying, have you heard the latest on Fauci? I, I tremor. I don't think I have. What's the latest on right. Anthony Fauci? Well, the latest on Anthony Fauci is, uh, well, the continuation of his press tour and media train. Uh, we have now uh, the release of Fauci, a documentary uh, that that highlights the great and grand wisdom that our Savior has bestowed upon us. And uh, it is sure to include no contradictions against the holy word of our Lord Fauci. Yeah. Right. There is no blasphemy allowed. So Fauci is the invaluable source of good purity and science, according to this uh, uh, rather interestingly constructed documentary. And so uh, uh, there, there is just no room for any kind of debate, discourse. Even the admission of flip-flopping is, is not included in this thing. But what's also kind of fascinating about it is, is it this documentary was scheduled for a limited release in 11 cities around the country, but then also managed to snag release on streaming services through Disney+. Plus. Uh, I can't actually figure out how much money was spent on this thing. Looks like a lot. It's, I'm on the it website It appears now. to be a sizable amount. Yeah. Um, but and what's also very interesting is, as I was Fauci, researching this, the man, the myth, the, the legend. God. Yeah, right. Yeah. But as I as I was researching this, yeah. though, apparently the documentary was already in production in 2019. Uh. And all of the now bulk of the documentary about the coronavirus has been added after to try to to sort of reframe the motor. So they were originally making a documentary to talk about Fauci and his role as a public servant and uh, uh, talk about things that had happened as far back as the AIDS pandemic in the 80s, which I think we've talked about on this show some. Mm -hmm. 
And they then, after the coronavirus pandemic broke out, they decided, well, we can't let a good tragedy go to waste. And so, or, or a lot of earned media. Right. And so they then, after the explosion of popularity with Anthony Fauci, they retooled the documentary to be Fauci did nothing wrong and, and all of his COVID predictions were correct. And now we see reviews of the documentary in a variety of papers, including the New York Times and the LA Times, all of whom are saying that the movie is gospel and is the sole source of truth for the pandemic. I did see the New York Times, however, say that, well, the film did bring a piece of counter uh, information in that Dr. Fauci may have, in fact, flip-flopped in the earlier part of the pandemic about whether or not we should use masks. That was the but only thing. the New York Times also said that in the next sentence that, well, the science was out at the time and we didn't actually know whether or not we should use masks. So we can't actually count this as a lie. So when Anthony, so, so they're still covering for him on I this over saccharin. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. I remember his first words at his first press conference once Joe Biden was sworn in, and he said, "What will be different about this in, uh, this administration is we won't guess if we don't know the answer." Turns out he was the chief guesser. Yes, indeed. What was also very fun about this is uh, apparently they kept the making of this documentary secret yeah. in the last part of, doc- of Donald Trump's presidency. So that he wouldn't fire Fauci and undo all of this great good work. The Wikipedia article for the uh, uh, the documentary contains that snippet. What happened to National Geographic? I guess we can say what happened to the military. I guess we can say what happened to so many things. National Geographic, I, I won't what, forget. What happened to news port- right. reporting entirely? Yeah, what, do you want to say something about it? Well, just the fact that every news story is now just an editorial in disguise and that the editorialists are all basically trained from the left, uh, that no one who would have a counter view would survive in any school of journalism any longer, nor be hired. We saw that through a controversy with Arizona State University's there, yeah. uh, uh, School of Journalism. Ray Lee uh, Klein, I think her name that's was. That's correct. Yeah. The, the young lady who was uh, canned from her uh, non-paying jobs, effectively, uh, because she got off, uh, got off the narrative and yeah. tweeted something about a news story just raising the question of, isn't this interesting? Citing and the New York Post. That's correct. Which and, was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Well, that's, there's a questionable source uh, right there because, <laughs> of course, uh, he couldn't actually rap at the time. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, we have a, a, an entire uh, new right. genre in which uh, the founders rap and they are uh, retooled as diverse individuals who stand for the left uh, model and not for the actual things they wrote about, including the Constitution. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, we've got a very left journalism here, and, and it's hard to imagine that we could ever get back to a place uh, where we wouldn't have this because we're now seeing the media being driven by clickbait, and that clickbait is only driven by folks on the hard left and the hard right. And as Lewis would point out, uh, Twitter and um, what's the other one? Twitter, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and all of the rest of the social no, no, media no, sites. The, 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 the Google, streaming Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. That, you know, those are primarily uh, very, very young, skew very, very young in their demographic and very, very left. And since the media is now using social media as the basis on determining what is news, uh, that's then being driven by the idiocy that is uh, primarily fun, uh fomented there. One point I would tack on to what you said, and I do agree uh, with, with everything. The, the only piece I would quibble with is uh, going back to a better state of journalism. I have contended and continue to argue that yellow journalism never left. We had the same kind of lies that led us into the Spanish-American War and the First World War 100 years ago still propagated today. The journalistic class has always used the American people as, as 
really just uh, uh, livestock that they can uh, uh, move and and rustle in, into whatever configuration that a they want. A herd of independent minds, as exactly. one sociologist once put it. Yeah, Of dependent minds, I would say. Or dependent minds. It's interesting you mentioned that case at ASU, Hugh. A lot is coming out from ASU that, the, the whole racial assault issue that took place at the Multicultural Center where whites aren't allowed. But let's go back to the one at the Cronkite School, this Rayleigh Klein uh, case. She was – we interviewed her. She was the um, – she was the uh, the producer, the head, the chief of news at their local radio at the ASU radio station there, and she cited to a Twitter. Uh, she cited to a New York Post piece uh, that questioned a narrative over a over a over a shooting. It turned out correctly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It turned out correctly. The yeah. question was the the questioning of the dominant narrative was was the questioning was right. The the dominant narrative was wrong. She got fired over citing to. A, I asked her a question, and this this kind of, as I recall, turned a switch in our heads, didn't it? Uh, I asked her if they they have courses on editorial journalism at ASU's Walter Cronkite School, and she said not a one. Right, and instead, uh, writing has become the yeah. the editorializing. Uh, it, it, what Seth is referring to is the fact that he and I discussed uh, not more than briefly. It was uh, a decent conversation about providing some content to the School of Journalism on what editorial writing means and how to do it well. And the challenge we face in the current environment, based just on an editorial piece I read while in Kazakhstan, yeah, that's where I was again, uh, by Elvia Diaz in The Republic, was absolutely just a complete hack job. And the narrative she was spinning was to be unquestioned. And most of what she was relying on was nonsense. It was it was a blatant sort of bending of the truth in order to make her political points that were clearly far left. That uh, every Republican is is uh, is not to be believed. I mean, who could possibly believe anybody who carries the the R after their name, and uh, that that should just be easily disregarded? If you're a Republican speaking about anything, you should be easily disregarded. That literally is the kind of uh, uh, assumptions that are in this piece, and it's palpable. And that that now stands as the editorial standard for the Arizona Republic is very sad to me. It's it's sad and it's problematic for our youth who are going through these journalism schools thinking they're getting something like a gold standard in journalistic education because if they are not being taught to distinguish between reporting or news and opinion, if they're taught that there's no distinction – um, we can't raise with men without chests and expect men with chests, right? We can't raise people who don't understand that distinction and expect that distinction. This is what has been flooding our media for a long time. Um, it's not a crime, certainly, but it is a huge blight on the notion of journalism. Can I pause your, your right point, there and your, pick up on that yes, on the other but side? Yes, your point you? is that you can't blame somebody for what they don't know. Right. And the challenge we now have is that most of them don't know what they don't know. Right. Because they've not been taught anything. That's right. I'm Seth Liebson there. The Hallmans, we're available for you at 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman with us as we do every Tuesday in our third hour. Happy to take your call, 602 You can call about anything because Hugh 
Uh, calling card is that he is our resident epistemologist. That's actually Lewis. I stole that line from Lewis. So I have two resident epistemologists? I, I, I think the original line is applied epistemologist. Yes. Applied epistemologist. I think that would make us resident, residi. Epistemologists in residence. Sure. <laughs> epistemologists in, like, like attorneys general. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, epistemologists in residence. The fact that um, society is increasingly having a hard time distinguishing, discerning between fact and opinion. Uh, certainly we see this in journalism. Um, we're seeing it, however, in larger parts of our society as well, Lewis, right? This Absolutely. is another version of an infectious lab leak that has left the fourth estate and affected the first, second, and third ones as well, right? Mm -hmm. You want to say something about that? Absolutely. So or not. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong, Seth. That would be something. <laughs> not, I mean, not only are we are we uh, as you say, we have got a, a crisis in the education of our journalists, yeah. but I, I think that we can extend this more broadly to our political education generally. Most people learn about political philosophy at the university level. You know, we get a little bit of civics probably in high school, but most people just don't generally get that into it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we are then. Uh, left with all of our political education being at the hands of a professoriate who, since the 1960s, we have been warned, has been growing, you know, more and more leftwards. And now we sit here in 2021 wondering why conservatives aren't getting a fair shake in the minds of academics and political institutions, despite the fact that this has now been going on for 80 years. You know, we've got a biased hand. Is it any wonder that a bunch of leftists are, are unable or unwilling to extol the virtues of conservatism? I'm utterly unsurprised here that our best and brightest is not, you know, queuing up to be on our side right now because we're frankly just not having the conversations that let that happen. The, the way that most people come to conservatism these days is that they're trained as liberals and then liberalism does something so beyond the pale to offend them that they get moved from the camp and slide over towards conservatism. And I, I would add that I think, Lewis, your analysis a couple of weeks ago about the fact that uh, liberals really only function on two two facets of a five facet two, two moral foundations yeah and that the that those foundations make it very difficult to observe conservative views on issues and conservatives operate on all five moral foundations and so more easily see a liberal point of view and are willing to give it credence and that tends to move us to the left uh, certainly, uh, just as an example, this morning. All society to the left, you're saying. Yeah, all yeah. of society yeah, yeah, to the yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. so conservatives are willing to accept uh, a compromise because they can see that other view where liberals cannot see a conservative view or accept it as, as valid. And certainly the liberal institutions in, in uh, universities are pushing us in those directions. If you never hear the conservative perspective, you're never going to even give it any credence uh, at least if you never hear it with any kind of valid effort. The the unique nature of the university education you and I had, Seth, uh, I understand doesn't even exist at the same institution we both attended. I, I can confirm it does not. Yes, and so that that the even the uh, what were the fonts of conservative thinking uh, at places like Claremont Men's College, now Claremont McKenna College. I can confirm certainly at the University of Chicago in the economics group that I was in, in in law and economics, there were still clear understandings of what it means to have a libertarian or, or conservative perspective and why that was based in economics and the, and the uh, natural law and things like that. 
that I suspect, based on what I've seen from the institution, has also been lost to some extent. Certainly the whole nudge theory that's been uh, brought forward in the last 30 years uh, was uh, brought out of the University of Chicago, an economist and a, a lawyer there, the economist being a more moderate to conservative economist, but the lawyer who takes the stage on that uh, became— Osner Easterbrook, who are we talking uh, about? It, it, no, no, no. It was— uh, Or the economist. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> Either one. Uh, You're on jet lag. We'll forgive uh, no, you. No, that is true. I'm thinking hours <laughs> off. But the the issue is that he became, uh, for Barack Obama, uh, one of his czars oh, of, yes. right, of, right, right, of right, right, institutions. Right, right. So he was clearly from the left. Uh, Cass Sunstein. And so Cass became the face of that. And it's clear that his push on all of that effort in the writing was to select uh, what what nudge theory is about is that you you make choices for people Mm -hmm. that they would then have to opt out of. And if you opt out of that, then you can change your opportunity. But the cost of making the opt out decision is sufficiently high that generally the decision gets made in the direction that the policymaker wants it to make. And so the decision making pushes to the left, which brings up Lewis, who's about to explode to jump into the fact that it is that concept of nudge theory and using government to make decisions for people that we now see surrounding us. Exactly. Yes. So so I, I would also like to clarify a little bit on, on what nudge theory is. And, and at its most basic level, it's not just reordering the choices that you get, although that's a very common implementation of it. It's changing the incentives around you so that that policy need not be coercive, but that you are incentivized naturally to fall into what the the designer views as the correct result. Correct in quotation marks. So that that's what we're seeing uh, playing out. I, I, I believe Aldous Huxley sort of gave rise to this uh, voice in 1931 in writing The Brave New World. That's that's exactly right. Yes. And, and we, in fact, were arguing just today about the, the applicability of those two books. Oh, I want to be in that I only argument. gave one book. Uh, I always said no, no, we no, were no, arguing, no, no. We were arguing back books. and forth. So, so we were arguing. two books. We were arguing. can't oh, mention no. one without the other. I'm 1984. in on this. I am exactly. In on this. Yeah. Exactly. 1984 is the other. Yeah. So my... Because, of course, everybody would have known the second book that, that you were referring to without you actually giving it. I title. did. I yes, did. Right. This is a wiser audience. <laughs> so what, what we're dealing with effectively. Actually, is... let me let me let me save that point for just a half a moment because okay. it's worthwhile for many, many years since 1984, which I think came out second um, of those two books for many, many years. In 1949. Yeah. A lot of. A lot of theorists have said which one was the predictor, which one are we living in a brave new world or are we living in 1984? And for many years, people said it was a brave new world, and they're now saying mm, it's Orwell. Right? And Lewis is going to yeah. disagree. Absolutely he it's not. Okay. They are so wrong. It is absolutely and, and this will is how always it ties be a brave new world. The use by government of incentives by subtle policy choices to move people into the corrals in which they want to be pinned. Mustafa P E N N E D. Mustafa Mann, the world controller in Brave New World, actually uh, articulates this: that there is uh, a no better slave than one that you don't have to coerce and beat into compliance. That's a big thought. Hold it. We got music. We got commercial break. I'm going to have you repeat it and then go into it. Interesting thing about those conservative schools that we attended, Hugh. They were known as conservative schools. I'm going to bet, at best. 
at best, 40 percent of the student body actually voted Republican. But that's what constituted a conservative school in those days. It was based on a faculty that was able to articulate clearly those conservative positions. And a faculty that probably also 40 percent voted Republican. Indeed. Yeah. It, it was 60 percent liberal that. nonetheless. Yeah. That's correct. If Absolutely. That. That's, that's what used to be conservative, 40 percent of something. It's now – Zero percent of everything. And I'm that's Seth- still too much. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm Seth. There, the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Did you ever see Johnny Cash in concert? I did. I thought you might have. I did. I thought you might. Is that the best thing in, you've ever seen in concert with bragging rights? Best person, best concert you've ever seen that you can brag about? Johnny Cash? No, I think the best concert I ever saw in person was Frank Sinatra. Yeah, that was my bragging rights, too. We were probably at the ASU. Uh, no, this was uh, out in the uh, amphitheater out in the West Valley. Oh, later. Yeah, when he wasn't uh, as good yeah, as when I saw him. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I saw him with uh, Steve and Edie. Oh, yeah, that's great. It was a very nice concert. Do you know my Steve Gourmet story? No. Steve Lawrence story? It's a funny one. Should I tell it, Bill? Do you know it? Please. So you know I I do a lot of work with – or used to do a lot of work and still do some work with Bill Bennett. And we were at a fairly fancy restaurant in L.A. Our hosts had put us up at this hotel. We were dining at it. And Bill thinks he knows a lot about music. And Steve Lawrence comes up to us and says, Dr. Bennett, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I just am a huge fan, and, I, and I, I'm Steve Lawrence. I just had to say hello. And he goes, Steve Lawrence, Canadian Sunset. And Lawrence says, that would be Andy Williams. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Steve Lawrence story. <laughs> Isn't that the best? You thought? That is pretty good. That's pretty good. Lewis, our Altius Huxley uh, epistemologist in, uh, in, 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 in... I think you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable in that epistemologist. one. Epistemologist. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Aldous Huxley, talk to All us. Right, so, so we were talking about uh, my assertion that Brave New World is, in fact, the accurate prediction and that we have are really As opposed to, fear, to 1984. Right. We, we really ought to fear a world where our pleasures are used to rule us rather than the one where there is a boot stamping down on our throat. 1984 being the boot, Brave New World, of course, being the alternative. Soma, right? Now, Soma. Soma, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Now, the quote here from Mustafa Mann, the world controller in A Brave New World, really uh, uh, sells this for me. Slowly. And the slowly. quote is this. A really efficient totalitarian state would be one in which all, the all-powerful executive of political bosses and their army of managers control a population of slaves who do not have to be coerced because they love their servitude. Right. This is interesting to me because I, I, I have a phrase for this, which is getting used to decadence. Well, I would say it is bread and circuses. Right. Right. We understood this for the last couple of thousand years. It's nudge theory. It is how you reshape the table such that the subject follows along with the route you have prescribed. That's all it is. We be rats. Yeah. See, and 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 it turns out we trade in individual rights for something like um, communitarian or commu- community control. Right? Welcome to the Soviet Union. Right. This, this is this which is, is in fact the 1984 side of things. Right. right. Which uh, is. See, I would disagree, Lou. That's where the the amazing thing is that although 1984 is intended to describe that kind of totalitarian boot, the subtle thing about the Soviet state was that the uh, opportunity for benefits and the incentives driving that behavior is what ultimately led the society along. And that's why it's scarier to me. 
uh, given what's going on today, that the difference between the average person in the Soviet society and the average person in the United States today was not very far apart. And when you recognize that it was the incentive to get a few extra grams of bread, the incentive to get a slightly larger apartment, the incentive to maybe have a chance at a crappy automobile or shoes or any other fairly basic goods, that's what drove a lot of people to do what they did. But the incentives, those those economic incentives as you describe them, are not the coercive apparatus in place in 1984. Oh, I agree. But uh, that's why I'm saying that... That Huxley is then right. The Soviet Union was more Huxley than people understand. Uh, That that we will definitely agree on. But 1984 got you to Huxley, in a sense, if you can work it chronologically. The totalitarianism described in 1984 was the condition precedent that allowed a brave new world, if you will, to take place. First, you control the people, you erase their history, you change their memories. Then you can allow for a situation where you are entering a brave new world in which people are comfortable. I think I I could buy that, that there is a a necessary but not sufficient period of of violent transition that might be required. Although that may not necessarily be true, frankly. Um, look at the last year as an example. How many of us have become champions of giving up our civil liberties? Well, that, that's 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 your brave new world. That's your brave new. Is world. it? I think it uh, is. Is it? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it is. Because that is our brave new world. Soma, that is our brave new world. Yep. You see falling education scores, rising violent crime, rising homelessness, greater control through government mandate, greater drug use, greater exodus. I'm describing California. You have the opportunity to change it, but you're used to it. And you'd rather it. Right. Except for those people who escape. And the difference, uh, I think your point is that the Soviet Union required force first, and that is absolutely correct. Lewis's point is the modern uh, United States society is just taking the easier path using incentives and and sweets. Yeah, let me say something on that when we come back. Incentives and sweets. Bread. (laughs) No. Bread and circuses. (laughs) Breads and circus. Bread and circuses. Okay, we'll be right. Circai. Everyone had a higher voice in 1961, Hugh. Even the early Frank Sinatra had a much that higher is, pitch. That is true. Right. Age, age <laughs> we are discussing the t- vocal tone and timbre of Ronald Reagan's voice. I'm Seth Liebson there, the Hallmans. Another point about the Soviet Union, do whatever you want with it. I think it's worth pointing out that we're describing perhaps in the last segment or two maybe two different parts of the Soviet Union. There certainly was the one that was involved in our twilight, long twilight struggle, as John Kennedy called it. But then there were the last 10 years of the Soviet Union as well, which are marked by an increasing number of its citizens, of its um, of its prisoners, of its prisoner citizens, if you will, uh, who started to disbelieve, started to doubt, heard the screams, if you will, uh, that Whitaker Chambers talks about as 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 more and more information and visitation from the West came in, as more and more information became available through technology, as more and more people, thank God for Ronald Reagan and Jim Kirkpatrick, were making an issue of the Andrei Sakharovs and of the other kinds of so, uh, uh, political prisoners. As the Soviet people learned more and more and heard more and more about all this, they started doubting more and more their own regime, which it could no longer keep under a thumbscrew, keep under a boot. Right. And and this became true of all of Eastern Europe, quite frankly, uh, from roughly, uh, I don't know, 1980 
1992 to 1992. Let's just say to, to pick a, 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 a theoretical 10-year period that well, I think is close to accurate. 1991 because the Soviet Union sure. fell apart on uh, okay. officially December 16, 1991. Fine. 81 to 91. Even better. The inauguration of Reagan to, to 91. That's good. There's a message here in a reverse direction, which is once a people stops believing in their country, once a civilization starts feeling badly about its own very own civilization, you have now begun to take the pickaxe to the wall. That can be true of a dictatorship, as Jean-Francois Ravel said, as much as it can a democracy. Hence, hence one has to be reminded not that it was a republic or a democracy in the current sense, but of the most powerful uh, country and nation on the planet at the time, Rome. Right. 483 years, yep. exploded. I would actually, so there, I, I would note that there are a few other issues at play here that make the Soviet Union and the United States extremely different from one another. The The first thing I would look at is their demographic structures. Now, the Soviets in building their ugly, terrible little apartment blocks in all of their cities created conditions that actually made it very, very difficult for family formation. And undesirable. So this is one of one of the reasons that the Russian ethnicity is literally dying out these days. Um, it is, uh, uh, you know, we, we expect there to be half as many Russian soldiers in their army in 2025 as there were in 2015, purely for population decline and demographic drop reasons. So they are out looking to recruit young people to their society. But I'm going to call you on this, Lou. The, the Soviet Union was not just Russia. And so, for example, Kazakhstan, with the same ugly uh, Khrushchevkas, uh, the Khrushchev-built buildings, uh, the little concrete apartment blocks, uh, and also the Stalin-era stuff uh, that continued, um, creating a bad environment for family formation, occurred in all of those places. And the interesting thing is, this goes back to a discussion we often have, the character and nature of people such that they would want or desire independence and liberty versus the society that they've got. And the Russians, uh, through whatever means, have devolved to a group of people who, after the Soviet collapse, have moved back toward a totalitarian regime in the same kind of model and formulation that existed in the Soviet Union. The boot hasn't had to be applied because that group of people living there wants a level of sustenance sufficient to survive and would give up liberty for that survival. In contrast, the the Kazakhstan country that I go to, the Kazakhstanis, are a very young population now uh, and continue to, to move in that direction. At the same time, they long for, yearn for, and have demonstrated their desire for freedom and have created a society in contrast to what's happened in Russia in the last 30 years that is nearly the polar opposite and demonstrated a level of success because of that individual liberty that outstrips everything in the former Soviet countries uh, across the board. My only problem with your analysis there is that the Soviet Union was effectively an imperial system that had captive powers under its belt. And so you, you wouldn't use the, a Kazakh's relation to the Soviet Union in the same way as you would the typical U.S. citizen's relationship to the Soviet Union. Now, you could argue that you might use uh, uh, a Native American's relationship to, to the, the U.S. government instead of the 
uh, uh, Kazakhs to the Soviet Union. But fair enough. They're, they're but very, your point you made was that I was calling you on specifically, Lou, was you used the example of crappy concrete buildings. That was as the first of several points. Re- reducing family formation, and those were elsewhere. And the the example I'm giving you in counterpoint is that the Kazakhstanis overcame that nonetheless, where the Soviet uh, Russians did not. And they've continued to decline. They've, that society is continuing to fail. And what I think it really points to is, as the Soviet Union was formed, first terror was imposed and used as a means to control. And that's why you had the time of troubles and the great starvations. You starved out the European Ukrainians and the Kazakhs, uh, the Central Asians. Uh, those were the primary places where people were murdered through starvation and direct murder to get that first control and then develop a population of people who would comply. You had compliance going on. Just the same word that we use now about whether or not somebody's wearing a mask or is willing to get a vaccine. Are they compliant? Now, this is this is tremendously valuable if we make this now connection to, as you were beginning to uh, right there, Hugh, to um, to what's happening here. It's worth knowing what happened there because why I believe it is 1984, not Brave New World, because I think it's the first that brings you the second. You tell me, you tell me if this was the Soviet Union and if this sounds increasingly like America. You read a quote from uh, BNW. Let me give you 1984. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. By 2050, earlier probably, he writes... All real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be known for. And that process does not require violence. And that's the difference, is that it can be done without violence. We're seeing it today in every day, and we're seeing incentives be used to herd us into corrals controlled by Joe Biden. It used to be taught that Thomas Jefferson once wrote that uh, the coercion of the laws can only affect the operations of body and not the measurements of the brain. And uh, this, I think, is actually an interesting collapsing of what Brave New World and 1984 give us. But speaking of giving, I'll give you the last word, Lewis. All right. So the, 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 what we're really looking at here is the type of coercion that's employed, violent coercion and nonviolent coercion. Now, everyone's scared of the jackboot on your neck, the violent coercion. But what the last two years have shown us is that we really, really ought to be more concerned about the nudging, the nonviolent coercion, the Brave New World type of coercion that that really emanates from mandates, from changing the the normal ordering of our society that then uh, causes to act in wildly different ways. These mandates are exactly the kinds of encroachments that are eroding away at our civil liberties and and destroying the liberalism that is the foundation of our society. We have going on, Seth, to make your point, the effort to change language, to change terms, and to change ultimately history by rewriting it, that the uh, left's beating on uh, Donald Trump for uh, his uh, 
uh, unwillingness to na- articulate the facts clearly has then been replaced by the very clear restatement of history. You've got the the corporate media and the likes of the Speaker of the House talking about the revolution that took place on January 6th with violence at the Capitol, none of which occurred. And yet they overlook the entire summer of death and destruction, calling those peaceful protests. That's the kind of change of language and the kind of continuous uh, reverberation of a narrative that is not currently being challenged in our corporate media that is the most dangerous because as people are lulled to sleep believing that January 6th was somehow a revolution that was violent and that 10 people died at the hands of uh, thugs storming in the Capitol when in fact the only person who died as a result of that was one of the protesters. That kind of rewriting of history and the narrative and the change of language is what's most dangerous. And listeners to your show and many others need to remind themselves that it is acceptable and appropriate to object to that pattern. And that if we don't do it, this society is at risk. Dissentus patriotic. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.